I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hello, listeners. Since you can't come to the London Review Bookshop at the moment to enjoy our events, we're bringing them to you at home. While we're closed, our new podcast episodes will feature guests who you might, under better circumstances, have been listening to live in Berry Place, as well as previously unreleased gems from our archives. You can order the book discussed in this episode by visiting lrb.me forward slash order. That's lrb.me forward slash order. Hi, Adam. Richard. <laughs> um, well, first of all, I wanted to say congratulations for Box Hill. It's such a funny and erotic um, novel. Um, I really, really loved it. I'm really um, glad. I I guess I wanted to start by talking to you a little bit about um, the notion of control in relationships because we've got the relationship of Colin and Ray kind of front and centre in Box Hill, but we also have the relationship between Colin's parents. And throughout the novel, I think they're sort of often contrasted how control in the relationship of Colin's parents with mum and dad is kind of suffocating compared to house arrest, whereas control between Ray and Colin in their relationship is kind of erotic and inspiring and at times very loving. So I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about your decision to kind of contrast those two relationships in that way. Well, in a way, it's your decision as a reader to synthesize them because the book is written in such a way that the edges are very raw between Jean Genet territory and Alan Bennett territory. I deliberately don't smooth those transitions. So I think the reader instinctively says, well, there's a contrast being established here, whereas there's a lot of internal tension. I mean, you're right in the way that it's handled, but it's quite a crude effect when suddenly the parents' relationship, which seemed incredibly equal, only a tiny shift of power is enough to turn it into a sort of mutual imprisonment. Uh, but I mean, that, that's quite mischievous on my part. Am I allowed to say it's quite a mischievous piece of work? Uh, because the transgressions are sometimes touching and sometimes horrifying, and you have to decide which is which. 
that's so interesting because I guess it's about the kind of reader that I am. And I immediately was like, oh, it's so interesting that queer relationships can function in this way that's very opposite to sort of heteronormativity and sort of power dynamics. So I guess it's all about the kind of reader that I am. And you, you, in that sort of mischievous way, sort of using your own words there, you do sort of have this kind of high, sort of high wire act where the relationship between Colin and Ray is, you know, sometimes very consensual and seemingly loving, but it also could be seen as abusive. Um, I mean, there are several moments when, you know, Colin learns he's expected to kind of have sex with the whole motorcycle gang. I don't want to give too much away, but. Well, that's not giving stuff away. Sorry. That's <laughs> fine. The, the reviews did something similar. Uh, well, I mean, there are, there are various ways we can go about this. We can talk about the technique of the book and how that mm. is consciously undermining. But that's that your technical stuff only interests readers and writers of a certain sort. The other thing to talk about is gay generations and the fact i'm born 1954 you're born 1981 i think you say said yeah. so the previous pandemic of aids uh, struck my generation as sort of hammer blow because we'd invented our sexuality and chosen to identify with certain things which were suddenly rendered completely different so sexual intimacy which was a goal was suddenly a horror whereas your generation was brought up with whatever messages you had was that sex and AIDS were, you know, that sex and death were already locked into a dance together. And I think the the differences between the generations is between gay generations is something that AIDS has accentuated. But it's also true that if you're of my generation and you get on well with your parents, which I did, you're a sort of ambassador for gay sexuality. You're always saying, explicit, not explicitly, but you're always saying, Mom, I'm not going to end up getting AIDS. Dad, I'm not going to be queer bashed. I'm not going to be on the front pages. And you end up with this almost absurdly positivist uh, mm-hmm. description of your sexuality for their sake. And then when they're dead, you think, okay, let's have some fun. So, I mean, there is a sense, this book was written quite a long time ago, but it was written after... Combination therapy meant AIDS wasn't a death sentence. So I think the fact that the stakes were less high and I could experiment with all the negative images of homosexuality and the extreme dynamics of top and bottom that I wouldn't come together in the middle. You know, temperamentally, I do tend to bring things into middle ground. With this, I thought, no, let's keep the oppositions absolutely stark and leave the reader to reconcile. It's such a sensual novel. I mean, so it's many of Colin's sensual oh. novel. I'm, I'm so glad you've uh, you've you've invented that on your behalf. But I have no talent for sensual writing. I enjoy it when I read it. But let's bear in mind the sort of uh, default position of gay writing is aestheticized transgression. So nothing mm. could be more characteristic than to say his armpits smelled of the white truffles, not the dark truffles, the white truffles that the old ladies of Vicenza lay down on the stone benches in the morning before the tourists come. You know, that is a, a sort of classic way of recuperating the outrage of gay sex by saying it's poetic, it's mm. lovely and aestheticized. Actually, I do none of that. The sex is not sensualized uh, mm. at all. It's, it's, it's perfunctory and it's performative. Because it seems to me this sort of sexual relationship is based on the symbols 
and the the hierarchies and the rituals far more than the texture of sensory experience. So I didn't mean to put in uh, oh. that sort of detail that often softens the edges for a straight readership. Mm. So I, I failed. <laughs> no, that's super interesting. Okay, well, let, let's pivot a bit. I mean, I feel like a lot of Colin's memories are often sort of brought about by him sort of like having sort of sensory moments. So he's like remembering the feel of leather or the sound of zips, or even in one memorable scene, there's like the taste of beer when it could be the taste of piss. And the reader really feels those sort of sensory things. So can you talk about, as a writer, how you link Colin's memory to these kind of sensory moments? Oh, well, well, part of it is, as some of the reviews have noticed, is that I don't like chapter breaks. I like to have everything be a single web. And it's like I'm, I don't do knitting. One of my friends is a fantastic knitter. In fact, there's a knitted leather man, which would have been a, a lovely idea for the cover if we'd thought about it in time. But in knitting, you need absolute uniform tension. And that doesn't mean tension in the narrative sense. It means the stitches are the same size because you're pulling on the wool with the same tension. And I think that's what allows a piece that rambles all over the place to have a unity is the stitches are all the same size. And one thing that makes it easier to accomplish technically is if you don't have a chapter break, because when you have a chapter break, you're taking something up again you're putting it in your hands again. The reader has been somehow let off the needles of the narrative knitting. So I, I think that can be a technical advantage. But the other thing is I wanted to see if I could have something that was shot through with parody without quite being parody. I wanted to make it as hard as possible to read this as a love story, but also to resist it being read as a travesty of a love story. And that means that every sentence sometimes, but certainly every page and often every paragraph, has a mixture of crude and subtle, has a mixture of sincere and insincere. As, do you see what I mean? That uh, I think when the element of parody gets down into small layers, then it becomes impossible to say that the whole thing is tragic or funny the elements are fighting against each other and it's up to the reader to decide which way they decide the whole is creating let's talk a little bit about how you write about sex because that tension you talk about is really maintained during the entire novel and especially the moments when sex is taking place and it seems to be achieved by a kind of like forensic approach to detail like noticing tiny little things and linking them all together like colin's eye following the zip or the sheen of glistening sweat on ray's body and then we suddenly arrive in sex which feels very inevitable and integral to the novel it's so strange because i think the areas where you say this succeeds are areas where i personally are weak I'm weak so I, as a writer, so I've somehow managed to let the technique bring me to uh, to a new place. I mean, it, it isn't that it's intended to be um, the, the root idea of the book, I think, is to explore shock on the page. And I find it shocking, partly because my character, my narrator, is so undefended, is so weak and yet mm. any narrator in any work of literature, whatever, is strong because they control the point of view. So this is, in a way, taking 
uh, taking its place in a series of experiments with weak points of view. I've written from the point of view of people with AIDS when that was a terminal diagnosis in the first person. I've written from the point of view of those with congenital illness, somebody in my first novel who had kidney disease, who therefore was taken out of social life, had to stay at home almost the whole time. Imagine that. And then with with Pilcro, I have a character who's physically disabled, who has no physical power in the world. Uh, So to examine this, which is a case of, I think, psychological abjection, I think that's the technical term that a psychologist would use for my narrator's point of view, that is complete inability to identify with an active role himself, letting decisions being made around him, uh, which I do find extremely uncomfortable as a subject, uh, it does almost give me the creeps in the same way that I can't bear cringe comedy. I can't bear the sort of uh, comedy where people are embarrassed. There are certain states of weakness that I'm almost phobic about. And yet, when you're writing from somebody's point of view, they have all the power, not just some of the power, but all the power. So to have a manuscript in which somebody is in the first person describing how powerless they are is a very pleasing set of sort of interlocking paradoxes. Did you perceive that as you read it, that Colin was powerful by dint of telling the story, or is that something that only comes later as a realisation? No, I think that's absolutely true. Like I, I found a really strange sort of dance between him being incredibly sort of fierce and in charge of his emotions to, I don't know, him being then suddenly very weak and almost abused. So it, is, it does make for something very uncomfortable at times. I, mean, I think technically anybody would say that he is being abused. At the same time, emotionally, he doesn't inhabit the territory of abuse. There is no protest there is no overruling of an internal principle of autonomy. Sorry, that sounds very fancy. But what I mean is part of what is meant to be so disconcerting about it is that he takes as normal something that is supposed to be entirely traumatizing. But if the last word is his emotional and existential survival, then how abusive can it have been? So it is intended to be unsettling in the way those dynamics play out. Something I was very drawn to in your writing was the, how the sub-dom relationship is there between Colin and Ray right from the very start when Ray's clicking during the blowjob on Box Hill. And Colin doesn't seem to need to be initiated or taught about the rules of the kind of sub-dom relationship in any way. And, and then that sort of continued into the novel. You never teach the reader things just are as they are. And that's really impressive, I think. Well, there's, the funny thing about it is I don't know how familiar you are, with this, you are with this sort of subculture, but it's all made up. It's completely unrealistic. Uh, I was slightly influenced by there's a, a dramatist called Tony Marchant who wrote a television series about a, a mother dealing with a child who was congenitally ill, and he decided that it was simpler to invent an illness. It was made in, uh, Sue Johnson played the mother. Uh, so he decided to invent an illness so as to deal with the territory of illness in general rather than say, oh, well, isn't fibrosis terrible? In the same way, what I describe is not sadomasochism. There is no commodification of pain. There is no, you know, there is no 
actual enjoying of pain, even as fetishism is a bit, <laughs> a bit wishy-washy, uh, all it is is there's an element of objectification and role-playing. Uh, but it doesn't correspond to any possible reality. Uh, apart from anything else, we have a world in, in the book in which there are very few submissives, an awful lot of dominance. Anybody who's had anything to do with that world would say, sorry, mate, that's completely wrong. There is roughly one dominant for every 10 submissive. So I, I'm glad I fooled you, but it is, it is an entirely synthetic subculture. Uh, also, in this world, there are no straight bikers, as far as I can tell. I mean, it seems as if the bikes and gay, gay men are this unity that straight people wouldn't dream of interfering with. Did you notice that? Well, I mean, part of the novel does read like fantasy. Like we have Ray, who's like this kind of like Tom of Finland vintage porn kind of cutout, and he kind of speaks to a type of queerness that maybe doesn't or can't exist anymore. So it does feel like there is fantasy running through the book, certainly. No, I, I, I think that that's right, that it is uh, absolute fantasy. And the fact that, again, my normal tendency with a very polarized situation like this would be to find the common ground. And there is that, to some extent, towards the end, when Colin is trying to imagine the relationship from Ray's point of view, just down to things like, actually, was there a cleaning lady? I thought that was interesting when he has to imaginatively explore a part of the relationship that was not fantasy. But what I relied on and what seemed to do the work was the template of first love uh, and rite of passage first love, uh, becoming adult, loving and being loved, and the template of abduction fantasy are structurally very similar. So I didn't need to bring, to characterize either Colin or Ray particularly humanly because those templates are so strong, they will do a lot of the work for you. I see. So the reader just believes in what's happening. The reader just goes along with the fact that Colin falls in love with his abductor or his kidnapper or his boyfriend. Uh, yes. and But the other, the other thing, something that I wasn't aware of at the time of writing, but the the moment I'd noticed it, it is so obvious that it must have been part of my unconscious uh, planning of it, is that there are, there's quite a lot of reading goes on in the novel, rather surprisingly. They're both bookish. They both like books. Uh, I think I threw that in partly as, as, as a sort of in-joke because actually – People who are into kinky sex are often extremely sophisticated people in other areas, uh, mm. and I mean the you know the the uh, the people who wear full leather to go to Wagner at the opera are an, a known subculture of a subculture. But the mm. fact there is an awful lot of reading. There's even a scene where the two guys are reading with Ray resting his legs in leather on. Colin, and they're reading different books. And in a way, it's a completely bourgeois setting of, uh, of uh, you know, just hanging out together. And then uh, Ray starts tightening his legs around Colin's neck. Uh, you know, so it, it suddenly becomes something very different. But the emphasis on, on books and reading, it was only afterwards that I realized, in particular, about the only scene that I'm positively pleased with, you know, that seemed to me to have some psychological insight, was the scene of the bike cleaning where Ray never looks up at Colin. 
And mm. Colin first is offended because he feels he's being treated as if he wasn't there and then realises there's an element of ritually treating him as if he wasn't there because Ray knows he's there. If he didn't know he was there, his eyes would just stray upwards as a matter of course. So the line, one-way sharing, was the sort that he liked. And I think the idea of one-way sharing, that is an image of the relationship between the reader and the writer because the writer has total control when you think about it, the writer chooses everything and yet is completely powerless unless there is somebody in this apparently underprivileged position of reader who fully occupies the book, who surrenders. And it's the only thing the writer cannot do is surrender to the imagined world or, or artwork. So I think the sense that reading and writing is a one-way sharing maybe takes it away from the from the simply sexual or the simply psychological case study. You're listening to the London Review Bookshop podcast. You can order the book discussed in this episode by visiting lrb.me forward slash order. That's lrb.me forward slash order. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I loved that scene with the the reading that you described when they're both reading books and Ray tightening his legs around Colin because it does it reads like complete fantasy. It's very erotic, it's very sexual, but it reads like complete fantasy. And there's a sort of joke in that as well, which I really enjoy. I really enjoy also the book's approach to kind of writing about culture. So you talked before about having something kind of like um, having something almost a bit high and a bit low on every page. And I really like the approach, Colin's approach to culture, how sometimes he's reading Jeffrey of Monmouth and he's understanding the role of fate in like Bizet's Carmen. But then he also <laughs> showed him Spanish in some to the words, I've got a ferret sticking up my nose. <laughs> <laughs> high and low approach to culture and it kind of chimes a little bit with kind of campness um in a way like how may, potentially like queer people do talk about culture there is a lot of highness and a lot of low that knows there too and it's all sort of combined but i think all gay aesthetic is appropriation uh, i mean the current arguments about appropriation very much are seeking to defend the identities and the rights of recently uh, acknowledged minorities. But historically, gay men had nothing aimed at them. And so mm. anything enjoyed was appropriation. And I think uh, uh, the principle of appropriation, I think, is the, is the key element of culture. I don't think you can really uh, start laying down moral guidelines about where you're allowed to be imaginatively in anything you're shown, anything you read. Uh, and from that point of view, uh, that, that makes sense to me. But I, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be either highbrow or lowbrow my, myself to the exclusion of the other. I love the freedom to inhabit the low with high feelings or to drag the high down to, to, to earth by saying, yes, it is. Uh, I've got a ferret sticking up my nose, which was how I learned it, I think. 
<laughs> so, like, how much as a reader can we trust Colin's versions of events? Because I was really drawn to the idea, like, at the end, Colin says, my memory is fairly reliable. But then it occurs to me, you're playing this dance all the time where you give us huge revelations um, that we feel like we should have known at the beginning, maybe 60 or 80 pages onward a a big one of these for instance is like we think we understand their relationship with some sort of degree of understanding and then suddenly 60 pages in you let us know that colin's been sleeping on the floor and he doesn't even want to sleep in the bed and that kind of like well-timed revelation makes us reframe their relationship in its entirety and feel like we don't understand it uh, that, that's a really interesting example because that was the only change i made to the manuscript after when it was accepted by Fitzcarraldus, it was an old manuscript that I hadn't read for a long time. And when I read it, I thought that is completely impossible because in the original version, they did share a bed. Uh, And it seemed to me looking at it, that if you are living in a relationship that has this uh, very stylized dynamic of the way Ros is distributed, then you can't share a bed because the moment you fall asleep, your mammal self will snuggle. And uh, suddenly all the mystique of difference, which is comic anyway, because between men there is so much shared that is as if a hierarchy has to be invented in the same way that between men and women there is such a, a degree of tension between the biologies and the gender roles assigned, that it becomes a real work to achieve equality, whereas actually gay men quite often achieve equality at the price of boredom. Uh, But it seemed to me that it was impossible for them to sleep every night in the same bed and still spend their days as if they belonged to different orders of humanity. So it was a very late idea, but I did find it satisfying, the idea that Colin, after the first night, is on the floor and comes back into the bed only on their triple celebration because uh, it is birthday, anniversary, and the other guy's birthday because he won't... Colin decides that's to be Ray's birthday because Ray won't end up to having one. So they have all their celebration on one day. And the fact that he's back in the bed but doesn't sleep well, I thought that was that was mischievous but also had a certain acuteness to it. So as it happens, what has struck you as changing the perspectives was a late revision, although I did always want to establish that they were never in the same place at the same time emotionally. One of the things I find so painful is how sort of Colin initially accepts the secrecy. Like there's this really funny bit where he says, Mrs. Bluebeard wasn't really on the ball if she thought she'd sat with a man who had no secrets. So he, he initially lovingly accepts the secrets, but then later on in the novel, the secrets and, and Ray's utter privacy really uh, distress him. And he's trying to find out the truth about what happened and trying to find out more information. And that change, again, makes us feel like we don't really understand their relationship. And does Colin even? Uh well, he, he, he seeks to, but uh, there's a lot of talk in, in literary criticism about the unreliable narrator, whereas mm. narrators are always unreliable. If, you're, if your narrator isn't unreliable, then don't use a narrator. 
use third person in personal if that's what you want to do but it seemed to me that there is such thing as the as the, as the reliable enough narrator and a particular uh, enjoyable element of writing to me is to start with a narrator who seems self-disqualifying in some way who seems to be useless as a guide to life for one reason or another to be so marginal as to have nothing to say about the central things and then without uh, pulling back from that just following that sensibility to show that all the great subjects come along anyway however marginal you are you don't live at the margins of your own life and the big things will announce themselves i love that and that's really well sort of done towards the end of the novel when actually that tension you talk about is achieved by sort of following the kind of meanders of Colin's mind and how actually almost the novel kind of drifts away. He doesn't make a big point at the end. He's kind of just connecting one thing and another thing. And it really sort of shows you the sort of meandering mind of your narrator. It's also one of the things I, I've, by choosing to do things in a single section, which has been a habit for you know quite a few decades now, and even the big books, Pilcrow and Sedilla, are written in a single sweep and divided into bite-sized chunks for the reader's convenience, because that's a separate issue. You don't want to confront your reader with an overwhelming block of text, if at all possible. And I find those books that do without paragraphing fairly oppressive, but I do without chapter breaks. And what that means is the end of a single-section novel it's the only time where you're letting the text resonate because there's been no blank space on the page and the effect of blank space space on a uh, sorry blank space on a page between sections is a sort of sudden resonance so that if it's a joke then it's uh, the assumption is that there's a whole room laughing if there's uh, an emotion being fully expressed then again it's somehow intensified by the pause after it and if the only pause you're going to have is the one at the end, you have to be careful, unless it's been your intention throughout to go for a big finish, to wind down so that you don't have too abrupt a, an invocation of closure. So I, I like endings that are quite, uh, quite low-key or oblique, uh, certainly nothing too thunderous. And thinking about the sort of end of end of your book the final very sort of moving to box hill but moving visit to box hill um i found very sad because you talk about this sort of gentrification of queer spaces how the biker culture the subculture is almost sort of removed you say special special care is needed to protect the natural beauty of the hill bikers push off and it's it's not just that Ray isn't there, it's that the entire subculture and the fantasy and the queerness is no longer on Box Hill, is no longer allowed to exist. That's true. But I mean, in the fantasy of the novel, the way I've written it, you know, it was somehow 100% gay space for quite a few decades, which is beautiful. So uh, I think you know, I think uh, we've had our time there. Also, the the spaces that were that were queer spaces, you put it, were always the ones that were regarded as worthless. Uh, I mean, those great gay venues that people understandably sentimentalize were always the places where nobody else would go or you couldn't turn a buck, you know, no other premises, no other business would occupy it. They were always 
under you know they, they were never glamorous they only had the glamour of finding something necessary in a place that nobody else had a use for that's true until queer people came along and made them glamorous and beautiful and then made them worth money which was is a difficult thing can't be happy to have a Midas touch for other people <laughs> Exactly. Um, yeah, no, I do, but I do, I do find that very sad. I mean, even though you know, you talk, it, it's it's a complete fantasy that the Box Hill is populated only by kind of cruising, kind of Tom of Finland, beautiful bikers. That still, there isn't really a place for them at the end. And yeah, I, I find that I do find that very moving, and it talks about the sort of the gentrification that queer people are so often um, fighting, basically. At the same time, Colin doesn't mind going to the National Trust properties. <laughs> you know I mean? uh, I've, I've, again, there are there are moments where the the tensions within Colin's point of view are extreme, and I want them to bubble up every now and then. I mean, there's a moment when he decides not to take his nephew to the London Dungeon because he finds it unhealthy. And I mean, yeah. bear in mind the experiences he's had in the rest of the book. That has to be a piss take. That has to be a joke on my part. I mean, it must be me pushing him towards a moment of, of uh, ridiculousness. And yet, the particularly the way a first person narrative works i think the the single letter i that first person it's more than a person it's actually a literary device any sentence with that letter in it with i and that you know that 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 use of the verb has a, claims an authority that is quite hard to to dissolve and i think people can read the most remarkably contradictory testimony and somehow push it together into a coherent personality. And it may be that we do that outside of books too. It may be that our assessment of each other is to impose a, a, a ramshackle unity on a whole set of contradictory impulses. But I think in books, the uh, you know, steadiness of technique can allow you to get away with a great deal of essentially impossible <laughs> characteristics to exist in the same person yeah i mean i also i really also love that the fact that towards the end of the novel we have sort of colin hanging out with his mum and they're going to these sort of national trust properties they're going on their little outings as they call them um and yeah we see them sort of as you know kind of two old ladies together and there's something very charming and there's something very moving about that I, I certainly did want to have. I, I did try to get a copy sent to Alan Bennett, uh, <laughs> hoping that wow. uh, he would respond to the idea that it was more or less alternate paragraphs of Jean Genet and Alan Bennett. And I'd love to hear what he'd think about it because there is an element of overlap. At the same time, mm. the transgression is pretty intense. Uh, you know, there is uh, in in Alan Bennett much that I love his stuff. Uh, you know, the the attitude to sex tends to be the attitude of the Maggie Smith character in a private function, where after a moment of triumph, she says in a tone of grim determination, "I think sexual intercourse is called for." <laughs> I love it. Um, just thinking about the two. Finally, I think thinking about the the two mum, the two mother figures, because they are very sort of conflicting, aren't they? I mean, one we get this uh, Colin's mum. We get this wonderful moment where she completely accepts his queerness and is coming out when she's taking the turkey out the oven, you know, in just a flash on Christmas Day. And Ray's mother, well, 
the only thing we see of her is that she potentially is so affronted by you know queerness that she's having a bonfire in the back garden so and, i don't know destroying all evidence of everything he ever did yes uh, yeah. but I mean, it, it is extremely polarized and ray's mother has what a couple of hundred words dedicated to her so if i've managed to make you think of these as opposed uh, symbols of of uh, maternal reaction then i've done pretty well mm. Yeah, and part of the technique is some of the elements of it are like a hyper-realist drawing, like a Michael Leonard drawing, where where you know bits of detail are very carefully worked in 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 a sharp pencil. Other bits are a wash, and some bits are bits of collage and photographs tipped in. I mean, the 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 technique i hope gives the impression of being very coherent and very consistent but actually the areas covered are covered in very different ways and i do often put in a little bit of a stereotype you know the the angry hateful mother and don't even bother to particularize it because it's as a stereotype that it has some power and as long as you don't spend too much time establishing the stereotype as long as it's a, a very sharp paragraph then you can get away with quite a lot of crudity really i did, did have a lot of power because there's one of those moments one of the rare moments where we sort of kind of get a glimpse out of outside of the relationship of colin and ray initially and we sort of as the reader we really begin to see the the different poles the different extreme reactions that were possible to homosexuality in the 70s the kind of love is love and the i'm gonna burn everything and tear the world down in shame <laughs> But I, I'm really glad it worked so well for you. And frankly, I'm amazed because uh, I, I, in a way it is such a, there is so so much that is insincere and phony about it where I'm cons- consciously, uh, I mean, one of the reviews said a lovely thing, but I don't see how you could predict it. It said uh, that I defend my narrator's dignity while also sending him up. I mean, that's a lovely thing to be credited with doing, but I don't see how you could plan that technically. All you can do is establish a sort of set of conflicting fields of force within a fairly simple narrative and allow different moments of it to strike different sensibilities in a, in a different way. And that, I think, is, is the way that writerly control is also a form of permission where the reader can occupy you i don't have a set idea about how you're going to take in one incident but the way you move from one incident to another they're so differently calibrated and they call on different responses and from the two responses you've got from adjacent pages you will come up with something that somehow satisfies your appetite for complexity as well as for something simple totally well, it was really joyful to to talk to you about all this. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. And just a reminder that you can order the book discussed in this episode by visiting lrb.me forward slash order. That's lrb.me forward slash order. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 